Please turn to Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two, two drachma tax went up to the Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give an offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Amen. Well, there's a lot going on around here. It's an exciting time at UBC. Promotion Sunday today, new classes. It's great to see a lot of college students back, getting ready to plug back into the U of A. Some of ours heading out to other other universities across Arkansas and other states, having a new pastor who will be with us next Sunday, and it's a great time to be at UBC. It's been a it's been a real joy. I wanted to express on behalf of the elders and and myself appreciation for the opportunity of getting to bring the word to you these over the past year. Um, it's been a I mean, it's always humbling to stand and to to share the word of God. Grateful for your encouragement along the way. I know as elders we've talked about that. It's been been so good. We we realize our weaknesses and they sometimes come out all the more when we're in front. But you've been such a blessing. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for engaging as we have sought to honor the Lord through the preaching through through Matthew. Grateful for how God has led us as a church this past year in the transition. We're looking forward to the, to the Wheeler family coming to be with us next week. Uh, he's on his way, maybe driving even now, uh, making their way down. Um, it's been awesome to see God just bring our church together, affirm God's call to, to the Wheeler family, to Brad coming as our senior pastor. Looking forward to, to them being here in our future together. As a UBC family. Like Stephen mentioned a little bit earlier, we've been studying the book of Matthew, and we're coming kind of to a close on that. We we began this journey back in September 8th, Sunday, September 8th, 2013. So about two years ago, we began this study, walking through, and we're going to finish out chapter 17. Pastor Brad has expressed a desire to want to preach through the book of Peter when he arrives He'll be preaching in larger segments, probably about a, a chapter a week, beginning on October 11th. And then he will move into, into Exodus as his desire as we move into the, to the Christmas season. So we take, uh, really as an end, maybe a pause for the book of Matthew. Maybe Lord willing, we'll come back and finish it out and in, at another time. It's actually a good place to pause in the book of Matthew. The end of chapter 17 is a, is a good breaking point. Jesus and the disciples have made their way to Capernaum, and it's, um, it's kind of the end of their ministry in Galilee. 
Chapter 18 begins Jesus' fourth discourse with his disciples. And then chapter 19, they begin the journey into Judea on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus will be hung upon a, a cross. Capernaum has become the the home, kind of the home base of Jesus' ministry. It's where, if you remember, it's where Jesus called Matthew. He came into Capernaum and he looked over there at a, at a tax collecting booth and there was Matthew. And he approached Matthew and said, hey, come and follow me. And Matthew dropped everything and he went and became a disciple of, of Jesus Christ. Capernaum is also the place where where Peter's hometown, his, his mother-in-law lived there in in, in Capernaum, so probably his home, his, his, his home city, his hometown. He's the key figure, one of the key figures in our text today. So as we look at our passage this morning, as we, as, as we read, as we walk through it, we might, um, I mean, you might read it and think, well, this is all about paying taxes. We might look at it through kind of maybe the wrong context. I want to remind you that, um, uh, that there's a bigger thing. Now, taxes is, is a secondary issue. We'll talk about the implications of that at the, later in the message. But Matthew is writing. He's got some bigger goals in mind, some big, huge points that he's trying to make with this, with this gospel letter. Now, remember, Matthew is writing. It's about 40 years since Jesus Christ had, had died and was raised and had gone to be with the Father. About 40 years later, Matthew is writing this, this book, this gospel. So somewhere between AD 65 and 80, this, uh, the gospel is being circulated. As a personal disciple of Jesus Christ, Matthew's writing with purpose. He's wanting these early Christians to, to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What, what following him, what being a disciple, how it should look. He describes that in great detail, compelling. It's not just a, a badge that, that a person wears. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a Christian. It's, no, it's, it's not a badge. It's a, it's a life totally sold out and abandoned to Jesus Christ. It's about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following hard after Christ. It's about dying to self, living to Christ. It's about following Christ through trials and persecution that will come. And it culminates in Christ's commission to to go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that he's commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he tells them, he tells his disciples, he tells you and me, go as we go, as we make disciples. He is with us forever and ever, even to the end of the age. That's his message as a, as a disciple, but also as an evangelist. He has a, he has a point to make. He's, he's writing to non-Christians, particularly Jews. And he's showing them that this Jesus is truly God's son. He's the Messiah. He's the sovereign one. He is Christ. He's the one that the prophets had been foretelling, looking forward to, that there would be one, this Messiah, who would come and bring redemption, one who would come and and reign and set up the kingdom of God and set up a kingdom community. Yet this kingdom is different. It's it's not what they expected. So so Matthew is, is 
stating the case. He's, he's laying it all the evidence out there for, for those who don't believe that Jesus is it. He, he is truly God's son. He is the Messiah. He's the one who will come and establish his kingdom, but he's going to do it in a different way. He's going to come and establish a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly kingdom by conquering. He's going to establish a heavenly kingdom by coming and dying upon a cross, giving his life, pouring out his blood, conquering sin, death, and our enemy Satan so that we might have life forever and ever and ever. All those who trust in him as Lord and Savior and King become a part of this kingdom community. Thus the title of our series, A Kingdom Community. We become sons and daughters of the King and we get to reign with him forever and ever. Amen and amen. That's why Matthew is writing. And so when we read this text and we see this tax and we see Peter going out and catching a fish and finding a coin, there's more to it than just a a neat story about fishing. It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. It's about one who would give his life so that we might have life. So the tax, the son, and the servant. Let's use these filters this morning as we walk through this text. Let's pray as we begin to dig in. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. God, in realizing it is not the proclamation of your word that's power. It is your word itself that is, that is powerful. It is the gospel that is powerful unto salvation. So God, I pray your, your word will have its effect upon our lives. God, it will have your effect in me and every one of us who hear. God, may your spirit open our hearts and eyes and ears to hear what you would have us to say. And God, may we respond as followers of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at the tax, this temple tax. Look again with me, beginning in verse 24. It says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. Let's stop there. So here's the disciples. They've made their way back up to Capernaum. Capernaum is in the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, and they had come there. And as they walk into the town, Peter is approached by a couple of tax collectors, and they're asking if Jesus has paid the tax. Has he paid the tax? It's likely that they either recognized that Peter was the the leader of Jesus' disciples or that they knew him because that was their city, his his city. So maybe they recognize, hey, there's Peter. Let's go to him and see, make sure that Jesus has paid the, the tax. You look at this passage. The, the text doesn't say exactly what the tax was. It just describes the amount of the tax. It was two drachma. It's interesting to note that Matthew really is the only gospel writer to include this account. Remember, Matthew's a tax collector, so he would obviously have a little more interest in a story about taxes. And so he puts it in there. But again, Matthew is seeing a broader picture. He's, he's wanting us to see something about Jesus. So again, we'll soon see that, again, there's much more to this passage than meets the eyes. 
there's a little bit of a dispute, not dispute, but maybe differing of opinion on what this, what these taxes that are mentioned here. There's a tax mentioned in verse 24, and then Jesus talks about taxes. They, are they the same tax? Are they different taxes? One view is that Matthew's writing to address taxes that were being paid to Rome. So if Matthew is writing and if the date is after 7 AD, see the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And so there is no temple tax. So Matthew is writing, he's talking about just taxes that would go to to Rome. Recording this account, Matthew, what he's doing then is he's trying to, to show the early Christians that they don't, they don't need to pay the tax, but that they should pay the tax in order not to make an offense. But as you look closer at this text, it doesn't really fully fit the interpretation. In a minute, we're going to see that Jesus, he, he's going to make an, an analogy. He refers to the kings of the earth, which is an analogy of his father. It's not to Rome. This is not a Roman tax. Another interpretation is that these taxes were, were ones levied after the fall of Jerusalem, and they ended up going to a temple that was established in Jerusalem called the Temple Jupiter. Matthew is addressing whether or not Christians should pay the tax that would go to support idol worship. And again, I think there's some difficulty with this interpretation. In fact, D.A. Carson, he says that this particular interpretation, it cannot be supported because Christians, even in that day, would never be encouraged to support something that would go to idolatry. Christians are called to obey God rather than man. They would never go and give their money to something that would be of idol worship Third interpretation is this tax was a, a local or maybe a, a regional tax. And again, I think we're going to have difficulty with that because we'll see this analogy in a minute and it doesn't, just doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense. I think the best interpretation in my view and others that I've read is that this, this tax that's mentioned here in verse 24, it's, a, it's it, in verse 25 are, are two different taxes. So these tax collectors that come to Peter, they're speaking of one tax. And then when Jesus begins to, to talk with Peter, he's, he's talking about something different. He's making an analogy. He's taking this opportunity to, to shed light upon who he is as Christ. This first tax, it's called the two drachma tax, or in the original language, di drachma, two, two drachma. If you were to look back with me, Exodus verse 30, it speaks of a, a tax that was established. God established a, a tax for the tabernacle. Let me read this passage beginning in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you take them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who's numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, 
that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So basically every male 20 years old, every Jewish male 20 years old and older uh, from uh, were to give a half shekel for the tabernacle every year. When the census was taken, every male would donate a, a half shekel. And this would go to help provide for the tabernacle and the services of the tabernacle. Later, when the temple was built, this, uh, t- this temple tax was, was kept in place, and then it began to be used for uh, the services of the temple. You remember later, the, the Israelites were conquered. The temple was destroyed, and they were hauled off into exile. When they returned, you remember under, um, uh, well, later they, they came back into Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the, the temple. They didn't have the means, they, but they did reestablish this, this temple tax as they were building it and when they finished completion, but they only charged a third shekel. During Jesus' time, uh, we find again that this temple tax was back to a half shekel. Every Jewish male was expected to pay this, pay this tax. Worded here is drachma. It was a Greek coin equal to one denarius. You might recognize that word. It was the Roman coin of that time. One drachma or one denarius was basically representative of a full day's work for a laborer or a soldier. So therefore, this tax was basically about two, two days of work. So it was a pretty significant tax. So Peter's, he's approached by these representatives of the temple who are collecting this tax. He's asked in the affirmative. In fact, this question, it might be better stated, hey, your master, he does pay the tax, right? Doesn't he? Isn't that, isn't that true? They're asking, almost expecting an affirmative. It's interesting to note when you look at this, the, 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 the history of this tax, the Sadducees, some of the religious leaders, they opposed this tax. They didn't believe in the tax. They had, they were different from the Pharisees, had a lot of different opinions about things, and they, they disagreed with this tax and refused to pay it. Also, if you were a formalized trained rabbi, you were exempt from this tax. So maybe you wonder what, maybe these tax collectors were wondering, okay, what is Jesus' status as a rabbi? Maybe, maybe he's exempt. I don't know. I think it's just the best thing to do is just to see the text for what it is. Some guys came to Peter. They saw him as the leader of his disciples and said, hey, does your, does your teacher, does the rabbi, does he pay the tax? He does, doesn't he? Right? And Peter simply answers, yes. Yes, he does. From the answer, yes, we can assume that Jesus had likely paid this tax before. Temple tax. But there's more to this tax. There is a sovereign son. I want to continue in this text. Matthew 17, rest of 25 and 26. says, when they came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon or Simon Peter? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. This passage says that they came into a specific house. Again, likely it was 
Peter's house. It doesn't say for sure, but it's a, that would be a that would be a good guess. Jesus approaches Peter there in the house or Simon and asks him a question. We don't know if Jesus overheard the conversation when they came and were talking to Peter. Maybe he came into the house and he had heard it and then brings this question to him. It doesn't say that. We've seen Christ or Jesus' omniscience displayed in other texts. Back in um, uh, chapter 9 when he healed a, a paralytic, told him that his sins were forgiven. The religious leaders of that time, they got all, they started grumbling against against Jesus and grumbling to themselves and saying, this guy's a blasphemer. And, it's, and the scripture says in, in verse 4, Jesus knew their thoughts. We see that same thing. Jesus knew the thoughts of, of, the, of these Pharisees again in chapter 12, verse 25. It's not explicit in the text, but I, I tend to believe that Jesus, Jesus just knew. It's consistent with the miracle that we're about to see later in this text. So Jesus comes to Simon Peter and he asks, From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Just like we said earlier, Jesus is talking about a different tax here. It's different than the temple tax. This word for toll, it really means um, it's, it's the word for, for duty. It's a tax upon goods or services. So he says upon duty or tax. And this tax is the, the, the word that, that deals is connection with census. It's a tax upon people. It is, it's, it's a tax that's levied every year, once a year on the people. So he had these really kind of two different taxes. But then Jesus is referring to the kings of the earth. He's, he's talking about a ruling king, someone who is in place as, as the ruler over a kingdom. He says, what, what he's asking is, is, does royalty, do they, do they tax their family? Where does the, who do they tax? Do they tax their family or do they tax those who are subject to the king's rule? Well, see, the king is providing for his family and for his kingdom by taxing all of those under his rule and authority. He doesn't tax his children. He doesn't attack. He doesn't tax his sons. The family of the king, in a sense, is exempt from the tax. That's the point that Jesus is making here. Peter said, when he said the word others, he says it's not the sons, it's others who pay the tax. Jesus, what he does, he's affirming that the sons were under no obligation to pay the tax. They were free. And you read this, and you think, well, what, what is going on here? But this statement is, I mean, it's huge. It's really huge. You have to follow me here. So Jesus asked Peter, who pays taxes for the king? Is it? Is it the son, the, the, the son's kings, or is it the subjects? And Peter, Peter says, it's the subjects. And, and then Jesus says, well, then the, the sons, they're free. They're exempt. They're not obligated. Michael Wilkins, in his commentary on Matthew, he writes, listen to this. He said, this is a profound Christological statement indicating that not only Jesus' relationship by analogy to his father, but the ultimate king, but also the way in which he is the fulfillment of the law. Here Jesus is saying that he is the sovereign son. 
with this analogy, here's what Jesus, he's, he's saying that he himself is God's son. God is the sovereign ruler over all, and Jesus is his sovereign son. The temple, think about this, the temple to which this tax is going. I mean, it's God's temple. I mean, it's God's temple. So if Jesus is God's son, and the sons are exempt from the rulers, from the sovereign ruler of them all, then Jesus is himself exempt. He is God's son. He's under no obligation to pay the tax. And not only is the son free, but all those who belong to the son are free. Remember back in um, in chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus he comes to his disciples and he, he asks them, who, who do you say that I am? And who was it that spoke? Peter steps up and he says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Peter was beginning to get this. This, is, this isn't just a man who's, who's come. This isn't just, just a, a king who's going to establish a kingdom. No, this is this is the sovereign son. This is Jesus who is, who is God's very son. In our passage, Jesus, I mean, he's affirming again. Matthew is writing and he wants us to see that this is, this Jesus isn't just a man. He is the son of God. Remember in Matthew 9, looking back, Jesus is, Disciples, they were out in a field on a Sabbath. They were picking grain. The Pharisees saw them do this, and they, you know, they began accusing them of breaking the Sabbath laws as they were harvesting grain. In their discussions, Jesus claims that he was greater than the temple. He was Lord of the Sabbath. Why is this? Well, Jesus, again, he's the fulfillment of the temple and the Sabbath. Jesus goes to the cross. He takes our sin upon himself, and he makes the ultimate and final sacrifice to appease the wrath of God and atone for our sin. There's no more need for sacrificial system. There's no more need for a temple. Jesus took care of that. He was the fulfillment of the need for the temple. He gave his life. He was the final and ultimate sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the temple and the tabernacle was there, and people would bring a sacrifice. Then once a year for the the Day of Atonement, they would bring a spotless lamb, and they would sacrifice it there on the altar to atone for the sins of the people. Then again, they would have to do it again the next year. And day by day, people would bring their offerings to make appeasement to the Lord. That was the purpose. It was a place of worship, a place of sacrifice, a place of forgiveness and atonement. And it happened over and over and over again. But now Jesus has come and he has fulfilled the need of that temple. He became the sacrifice, the sovereign son, the lamb of God gave his life so that there would be no more need of a sacrifice. Forgiveness and redemption was completed in Christ Jesus. Matthew wants us to see this. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the sovereign Son of God. The temple in Jerusalem, it represented the the hope of, of God's coming redemption and the forgiveness of sin. As the Jews looked upon this temple, as even the foreigners come and they look at this temple, they knew this is a place where the God of Israel resided. It was a place where forgiveness and atonement was, was to be made. It was a place of, of, of redemption. 
Yet now, yet now for the followers of Christ, he is the fulfillment of that hope. No longer do they have to look into the future and hope for our coming king. He was here. He was here in their midst. He's Jesus, the sovereign son. He is our redemption. He is our source of forgiveness. Isaiah 53, 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Hebrews 9, 12 speaks of this final sacrifice. It says, he, referring to Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It is secured in Christ. It is there. No more need for goats and lambs, blood to be spilt out. Jesus' precious blood was spilt. And without the shedding of his blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. Jesus, Jesus is the sovereign son. He's also the humble servant. Look at verse 27. It says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus doesn't want to give offense to these tax collectors. The word here for offense is scandalon, or you think of scandalous. It means to cause somebody to stumble or to put up a, a roadblock or to, to trip someone up. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 18 when referring to not making a, a brother stumble by eating meat that had been offered to idols. It's the same word mentioned in Romans 14, 13. It says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block, a scandalon, to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Both of these passages, Paul's writing about not hindering a weaker brother in Christ. We're to build up our brothers in the faith, not create distractions or hindrances to their spiritual growth. These tax collectors, they're not followers of Christ. They're not brothers. But for Jesus to refuse paying the temple tax, I mean, it would have created um, a major distraction for these for these guys. They made it very difficult. One commentary I read that, that said that if Jesus had not paid the tax, these guys, these tax collectors, could have gone back to Jerusalem, made the journey down, visit with the officials there in, in the, the, the official temple guys and, and explain to them the situation. They would probably find that Jesus needed to pay the tax, and they'd have to journey back up to Capernaum and try to find Jesus and the disciples and then try to persuade him to to pay this tax. I mean, it would have been a major, major headache. Jesus was a thinking, he was thinking about their needs. See, he's, he's the sovereign, he's the sovereign son of God. Yet he's willing to set that, he didn't have to pay that tax. It's God's temple. He's the son. He didn't have to pay that tax. 
but he's willing to set it aside in, in order not to be a hindrance. He was willing to value the needs and the concerns of others. He was an humble servant. He submitted himself. Now, there's times that we need to stand on the truth. Jesus did this. He did it often, particularly with the religious leaders. He'd state a truth. It didn't matter who he offended, and he's laid it out there. And there's times we have to take a stand for truth. We can't just be silent. We have to take a, a stand. We, we speak out against abortion. We, we speak out against things that the Bible say are explicitly wrong. We, we encourage action in Christ, even if it means persecution. But there's times that we just defer. It's, it's, not, it's not that big a deal. We defer, humbly defer, as we think about how it affects others. Jesus, Jesus decides to pay the tax. He sends Peter and out to take care of this. We see Jesus willingly to submit himself to earthly rules. They don't apply to him. He's a humble servant. He's the, this account, is, he's, it's emphasizing Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's God's son, but he's also a servant. He was the servant. He was born in a manger. This Jesus, the Son of God, he, he, he humbled himself, became, became weak. He, he thirsted. He had hunger. He experienced pain. He submitted himself to the rule, even though he was the creator of all things. He submitted himself under authority. He paid taxes. And he was a humble servant even to the point of going to a cross. Philippians 2, 6-8 speaks of it so beautifully. You know this passage. It says, Who, though he, speaking of Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Again, in the verse, we see his sovereignty displayed. We see his humility as a servant, but again, even in this verse, we see his sovereignty brought up to the first. He sends Peter out to catch a fish. Some more liberal commentators, they look at this and they, they, they suggest that maybe there are fish, there are probably fish there in the Sea of Galilee that swallow shiny objects and that this catch was really not a, a supernatural act. <laughs> I read that, and I thought, man, that is, that's kind of crazy. And you think about this. Walk, walk with me through this. So Jesus, he comes to Peter and says, hey, here's what, here's what you do. I want you to go take a hook and go catch a single fish. See, this is the first time, really the only time in the New Testament that you see fishing with a hook. Most of the time it's done by nets. Here he instructs Peter, the fisherman who fishes with nets, to go out and take a hook and catch this fish. But somewhere in the past, somebody was in a boat or a fisherman or somebody just going out for a joyride, happened to have a shekel, maybe they were flipping it around, and they dropped it and it went into the sea and went down to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Pretty deep sea. This isn't like a little pool. This is a deep sea. So this thing goes all the way down to the bottom. 
And somewhere along the way, a fish swims by and sees this shiny object and thinks, man, there's a, there's a noonday meal. And he eats this coin that it happened to be dropped by somebody somewhere along the way. And this fish takes it in, and instead of swallowing it, he keeps it in its mouth like a lifesaver. And he sucks on it, you know, for who knows how long. I don't know, maybe a silver coin has a nice flavor. I don't know. So then Jesus, you know, just it just happened to be the right time. He sends Peter, and he says, go make a hook. Go get a, go get a hook, get a hook. He doesn't say bait a hook. He just says, take a hook and cast it into the sea. So you've got this most likely a baitless hook being thrown into the, into the sea. This, again, this isn't a pond filled with one or two fish. And so he had a 50% chance of catching this. This is a sea filled with thousands upon thousands of fish of all kinds. So Peter shows up. He gets a, he gets a, a hook. He throws it into the sea. And the first fish that gets on that hook happens to be that fish that swallowed a coin and was sucking on it for days and months that somebody dropped while out on a boat ride. And he picks, he brings the fish in. It's the first one. And he opens his mouth. And sure enough, there's this coin. It's the exact coin that Jesus told him to go get. And it's the exact coin, the amount that will pay for his and Jesus's tax, his temple tax. There's no way this is a coincidence. This is the sovereign son of God orchestrating all things. This is the Lord of all who created the sea. This is the, the savior who can speak to the wind and say, stop. And it just ceases. And the waves that are going like this, when he says, be still, they just stop. Jesus has control of that fish. He's sovereignly orchestrating all of this. Peter goes out and he sees all of it. Can you imagine experiencing that? I think, I think what Jesus is doing, man, he's preparing Peter. Peter has a huge, significant role in the establishment of the church. And I think when, I think this event just kind of nailed it in. He had already said, this is Jesus. This is, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And I guarantee you, after he went out there and he pulled up a fish and opened up its mouth and saw that coin in there, he probably fell on his knees in worship of Jesus Christ, son of God, Messiah. Now, they were still struggling. These disciples didn't get it quite yet. Jesus would go to a cross. They were still thinking he's going to establish this kingdom. But they would get it. After Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come down upon them and fill them. And they began to proclaim with boldness that this man who came as an humble servant, born in a manger, living a life, being subject to the rules of an earth that he created, paying taxes, he would go to a cross, give his life, become the ultimate sacrifice so that those who place their trust and faith in him might become a part of a kingdom family and live forever and ever with the Father. This is the, this is the Jesus that Matthew wants us to see. This is the Jesus that Matthew wants us to embrace and to give our lives and to follow with total abandon. He is the sovereign son, and he is the humble servant. The tax, the son, and the servant. 
So what do we conclude? What do we get from this passage? Well, as I mentioned, I think there are some lesser implications that we can draw. I'll just mention those. I think first, we, we need to submit to earthly leadership and government. I know personally I gripe a little bit too much about <laughs> things to do with the government, things I have to submit to, to repent sometimes. We need to support courage and pray for those in authority over us and humbly defer, humbly submit. I think we need to pay our taxes. Don't cheat on your taxes. <laughs> Romans thirteen seven says, pay to all what's owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Jesus says in chapter 22, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to give to God what is God's. Second, I think we, we don't want to be a stumbling block to, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, nor those that we long to see come to Christ. Sometimes we have to humbly submit and defer to others for the sake of unity in the building up of the body. I think we're, at times we're really good at making mountains out of molehills. You know what I mean? We, we just do that. We, we're too quick to pass judgment upon others based upon food or drink or clothing or preferences. We squabble over trivial matters and get distracted from the things that really matter like the gospel of Christ and the glory of God. You hear about churches that squabble over carpet color, temperature, <laughs> songs. I mean, it goes on and on. Distraction, scandalon. Let's don't be a distraction. I also want, don't want to create distractions that get us off focus from sharing our faith with those who have yet to embrace Jesus as Savior. We've got to, I mean, just be, I mean, laser focused in on what, what he has called us to do. We are to make disciples. We are to share the gospel. And we defer. And we, let's be patient. Let's be encouragers and vessels of blessing. So mentioned in the introduction, Matthew, Matthew's writing with great purpose. He's got some large goals. He wants us to see Christ in new light. He wants us to see Christ for who he is. He, he's the sovereign son. He's the king of kings, Lord of lords. He's worthy to be honored. Our greatest joy, yours and mine, our greatest joy will only be found in following and serving this sovereign son. By trusting fully in him, you and I become a son and daughter of the king. He's also this humble servant who became flesh so that he could fulfill his father's plan of redemption. See, through Jesus' sacrifice, he, he makes all of those, all of us who follow him, heirs, heirs of the kingdom. We have to surrender our all to him. He requires it all. You can't just, we can't just give him a part of our life. We can't just give him 
Sundays. Okay, here you can have me today, and the rest of the week is mine. It doesn't work like that. He's the king. He's the sovereign king who's worthy of total allegiance. And what are you holding on to? Look into your life. What are you holding on to? Does he, does he truly have all your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind? Does he have all of your abilities or your time and treasures and talents? Are they, are they his? Are they being used and, and used up for his glory? And UBC, we have some in, and we have some incredible days ahead of us, incredible days. This is an incredible body. So we pray for, thinking about you, we pray for you as elders, we walk through names. and let, I mean, it, there's some incredible, I mean, you are incredible. God has gifted you and he's brought you here to, with purpose. Each one of you who, who claim to be a part of this family are here with purpose and God wants to use you in significant ways as we, as we are focused in on the mission that he has for us in making disciples here in Fayetteville on this campus and literally to the ends of the, ends of the earth. We need an army of people an army of people who are all in, all in. The fields are white unto harvest throughout the world, our nation, right here in our community. And Oh, may God use us to make huge, life-changing spiritual impact for his glory. He can do that. And he wants to, and he wants to use you to, to do it. Really, after the service, we're going to have a discovery class. And we have a dozen or so who've signed up who are saying, man, we, we think this is where God wants us to plug in. We're going to talk about what it means to be a member, a part of this family. And then the encouragement is going to be, hey, get on board. Get involved. There's so many places to serve and, and, and lead out. We have many holes in our ministry that we have a ministry fair right over here. As you, as you leave this place, you say, man, is God using me up? Am I following him with total abandon? Man, we have huge needs in our church. Go right over here. Just right out these doors and go over there and talk to some of the folks that are from, from greeters in our parking lot to drivers for our, for our bus ministry to, to teachers and helpers and from child, from children all the way, all the way up. We need you. We're not just, we're not just here doing this. I mean, we, we, we are trying to get the gospel out, uh, throughout our community and into the, into the ends of the earth. And we need you. We need you. God has gifted you. He's given you, He's poured His Spirit in you and given you spiritual gifts to be used to edify and build up the body. You have this treasure of Christ in you. We can't be silent. We've got to get the good news out. There are people that need to hear. I mean, we're at a time now when thousands, tens of thousands of students are coming onto our campus. Coming, I mean, just right down the road here. We have hundreds, if not maybe a thousand girls or more, that'll be on this campus this week. They need to see demonstrated before them the love of Christ. And we need we need help. And you can do it. You can be a part of that. Maybe you're here today and you don't even know what it means to be a follower of Christ. Man, I want to encourage you. 
man, it is an incredible ride. Doesn't mean it's not difficult. Doesn't mean it doesn't have its challenges, but it is the ride of a lifetime. And it doesn't end in this lifetime. It's forever. If you'd like to know what it means to be a follower of Christ, some of our elders will be down here after the service. Come talk to them. Come talk to them. UBC, we have a new day about to begin. Brad will be here next week. Let's don't distract him. Let's don't, uh, let's don't bombard him with what we think needs to happen. Let's go and let's encourage him. Let's lift him up. Let's spur him on as he seeks to lead this body in Christ. Pray for his family as they come. Pray expectantly for one another. And let's just watch and see what God can do in us and through us for his glory. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you that even in a passage like this, it's not just about a simple text. In it, we see the Son of God, a sovereign king, one who was willing to defer, to even set his rights aside and go to a cross on our behalf so that we might become a family, become a part of his kingdom and be used even now to impact the lives for his namesake. God, I pray for our church. God, that you would draw us together, that we would not, we would seek not to be a distraction, but God, we would focus our minds, fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We would, we would run this race with endurance, not looking to the left, not looking to the right, but emboldened by the power of the Spirit and moving forward, being used by God, being spent and used up for your kingdom's sake and the glory that is due your name. God, we give ourselves to you fully. We don't hold back anything. All that we have is yours. We are your servants. We follow Christ wherever he leads. We come before your throne and we recognize that you are who you, who Matthew says you are. You are the sovereign, the sovereign son, the humble servant, and we worship you even now. Pray these things in Jesus' name.